The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What comes next after Kraft Heinz's bid for Unilever melted away and why allegations of sexism are a big roadblock for Uber? Those are the topics of conversation we'll be discussing this week on The Views Room, a conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Jen. All right, first let's turn to the mega merger that was not to be. Kraft Heinz's $145 billion bid for Anglo-Dutch conglomerate Unilever. If that deal were to come to pass, it would have married the Velveeta cheesemaker with the producer of Marmite. Mm, yum. Yum. <laughs> so joining us to discuss the deal and all the implications of why it didn't happen is our Dallas-based Breaking Views columnist, Lauren Silva Laughlin. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you for having me. So let's start. I mean, Friday, the news drops that Kraft Heinz had put out this bid for Unilever, and it's a huge deal. And quickly, like a couple days later, Unilever basically says, no way, go away. And then the whole thing seems to be dead, at least for the moment. Why don't you take us through a little bit of the mechanics, what happened and why it, it, it happened so quickly? Yes, it was fascinating. And what's interesting is that you know, people seem to be relatively surprised that uh, Unilever was the target. But, you know, Kraft Heinz was kind of out there and um, Mondelez was the one that everyone thought they would sort of take over. And then on Friday, you know, a bunch of the food company stocks were down. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about why it was Unilever. Unilever has this big sort of home products division and it didn't totally fit with Kraft. But, you know, $143 billion deal, everyone was, you know, pretty excited. And then over the weekend, you know, all of a sudden they put out this joint statement saying that the deal was off. Um, there had been some pushback in the UK. There continues to be about foreign companies sort of coming and taking over UK-based companies. And I think the issue is that, you know, Kraft is known, Kraft Heinz, and which is a part of, of 3G and owned jointly with Berkshire Hathaway is known to be a huge cost cutter. And um, even when Kraft and Heinz merged just two years ago, they went through a lot of cost cutting processes. People had massive layoffs. So there is an aversion, not just with Unilever, but perhaps some other companies in the food industry to being taken over by Kraft. So, I mean, one of the things that is logical about this deal is that Unilever probably could use some cost cutting. Their margins are uh, nowhere near as high as Kraft Heinz. However, it's also known for a lot of other things, right? They do a very good job branding. They're investing, right, Anthony? They do a lot of climate control and water. Yeah, they're, they're way ahead on that. And the, you know, they're trying to grow revenues. They've, they've been buying smaller companies, startups over the past few years that you've read about as yeah. well, right, Jen? So Dollar Shave Club and seventh generation. So they're trying different things rather than just being a mass generator of bigger profit, which is what 3G is trying to do. Right. And so you can kind of see why Unilever would be like, okay, we're allergic to this deal in that sense. But so where does Kraft Heinz go from there? Because their backer 3G, I mean, they they want to go places and they want to put together deals. What do you think is going to happen? You, you kind of wrote about one smaller deal that happened, I guess, earlier this week. I mean, where do you think with Popeye's, the restaurant brands basically bought Popeye's chicken here in the U.S. Where do they go from here? Well, that's interesting. So, yeah, 
if you looked across the sort of spectrum of food companies, Kraft Heinz by far has the best margin. So they sort of are taking this playbook that you bring up the restaurant M&A. That's a sort of different part of 3G. But again, sort of taking the same sort of from the same page from the same playbook of buying a company with lower margins, cutting cost, and then, you know, getting that sort of extra juice on the bottom line. There are quite a few companies within the food industry that Kraft could go after now. Mondelez is still sort of out there as one of those companies. You know, General Mills, some have talked about General Mills merging with with Kellogg. This concept of cutting costs in an industry where growth is fairly stagnant or pretty slow seems to be what most people are thinking about now. And M&A is really a great way of doing that. Right, so, Lauren, you talk about a number of companies here, but, but a lot of them have tried before to get us together. So Mondelez tried to buy Hershey recently and others have got problems in being taken over. So I think you know, Hershey has a, a voting block and so do some of the other companies or brands. I mean, this is this is a sector, surely, which you know, people might talk about deals, but it's a lot harder to get them done, it seems, than the talk would suggest. It's interesting. I think the same thing. And then on the other hand, if you look at what 3G did with the beer business, which is essentially roll up, you know, a very bifurcated industry, a lot of people made the same arguments along the way. And there were some DOJ antitrust issues and there were some sort of shedding assets here and there as a result of various problems. But uh, 3G just forged ahead and got it done. So I think that, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. If 3G Kraft Heinz decides that they want to gain market share in this business, then they will. And there might be some asset sales along the way, but um, I, I don't think that there's anything stopping it. So just look at the beer industry, just just so we're clear, I mean, 3G was behind InBev, which then bought or merged with Anheuser-Busch here in the US, right? That's right. And then they bought um, some other assets, Modelo's, and then, you know, in sort of a culminating deal last year, they bought SAB Miller, which also had gone through its own sort of acquisition spree along the way. Um, so something similar very easily could happen in the food industry. Yeah. And, and basically, that's not to say that Kraft Heinz can't go after Unilever again. Is, is that correct? Because I think they have there's a waiting period, but that doesn't mean that they may not come at them at, at another point in time. I think that the could be true. There was some question about why Unilever, as I said, and, and this other home sort of products business and what they would do with that. That question still exists. But then again, you, you know, you have Procter and Gamble out there talking about potentially, you know, people talking about it potentially selling some assets. So, you know, a decade down the road, could 3G be this sort of massive food beverage home products company that went about rolling up all these various industries? I, I think that's possible for sure. So on the beer analogy is, is quite a good one though, right? Because um, you've got AB InBev, which then buys SAB Miller, trying to get into new forms of business as well. So I, I think back rather amusingly to the uh, the Super Bowl ad a year or two ago where Budweiser attacks lovers of certain types of arcane craft beer, having just bought precisely that kind of craft beer brand a week or two beforehand. Um, it's the same in the food industry. I mean, retail products industry in general, looking at lead, Unilever again, buying 7th Generation, Dollar Shave Club. 
they're trying to get new products that appeal to, I suppose, millennials or, or more uh, sustainable conscious uh, buyers at the same time as still having to rely on the same old businesses, which, you know, like you know, Kraft cheese, for example, it may well taste good, but it isn't particularly healthy. It doesn't taste good. Does it not? No. Okay, I'm, I, was, I was guessing. Uh, Marmite, by the way, still the best thing out there. Put it together with jam on toast. Wonderful. Uh, and now I've made all our listeners feel sick. So, Lauren, back, back to the, the beer analogy. Isn't it true that all these companies, beer companies and food stroke retail products companies, have that problem of how to bridge the divide between the old products they used to sell, which aren't quite so modern, I suppose, and the ones they want to try and sell now? Yes. No, it is interesting because millennials are not very sort of in tune to large brand marketing. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago when they started to become drinkers and they hit the bars, um, they were much more susceptible to cocktails or craft beers, as you say. They hadn't been really quite as inundated because they consume media differently with the, the same type of traditional ads that prior generations had really latched onto. Now they've grown up, right? So they've traded in their sort of bar tab for a grocery bill and they're buying food for young families. And they don't like, you know, the typical diaper or the typical formula or the same kind of cheese. So the millennial drive behind, you know, how habits have changed are really making these companies think differently. And that's why you see, you know, companies like Unilever going out and acquiring very sort of niche developers of certain types of products. And does that mean that shareholders will have a bit more patience? I mean, obviously, we, we saw what happened with Unilever stock before and after the, the deal was announced and then crashed. Um, but, you know, their, their goal has always been, look, allow us to grow our business. Don't look so much at the profit margins. They're not as important as growing the business and making sure we have new products. Now, obviously, they've come out and said, oh, we're going to do more to look at what we can do to shave off some costs. So they clearly feel that pressure now that Kraft Heinz has come up with the, with the bid. But... Um, how does that play out, do you think, in the future when you've got you know, a 3G, which is very focused on cost cuts, and other parts of the business where they're more focused maybe on sort of longer term brand thinking? I mean, that, that's a, a, a big conflict there, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, it, it's hard to, once the ball starts rolling from one industry player to do M&A and start cutting costs, to sort of take your th- time and thoughtfully acquire other companies. I mean, they're going to have to pound the pavement in several different ways in order to keep their shareholders happy, or they're going to be very susceptible to some pressure that they are not going to like. Okay. Well, thank you, Lauren, for joining us. I know we'll probably be following this. There's going to be more deals in this space, and we appreciate you coming on The Views Room. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, well, for our next segment, we really need to stop and talk about Travis. That's Travis Kalanick, the chief executive of Uber, the ride-hailing app which is under fire after a bombshell blog post written by a former employee which detailed a litany of offensive allegations including sexual harassment at the ride-hailing app. It's bad form and it's bad for business. Jen, you had a look at this. Now, this company... I mean, it's, it's an amazing company in many respects. What it's managed to achieve is got every single traditional taxi company in the U.S. and around the world, it seems, up in arms about what it's doing for a business. But every few months or even every few weeks, it appears to do something outside of the regular business flow, which makes it look like just like it was from prehistoric times. And Jen, I mean, look, we've all read this blog post. I mean, it's amazing. Some of the stuff in there 
is, I suppose, in some respects, sadly, not that surprising. Yeah, it's not that surprising. So so basically, Uber's whole motto is to break rules and then basically ask questions after they break all the rules and try and mop up the mess mm. after they've done the stuff. Maybe you know, break, breaking the rule of not being sexist would be a, a good yeah, one. Yeah, so, so let's start just internally, right? So those are externally, they're out there fighting municipalities. They're trying to fight the taxi industry. They're trying to say that their employees aren't employees. They're contractors. You know, all these things are happening externally. Internally, we get word of this woman who used to work at Uber and now she's at Stripe, I believe. And she goes off on this blog post about all the various instances of gender discrimination and sexual harassment that she experienced when she was an engineer at Uber, which women engineers in and of themselves in Silicon Valley, they are unicorns. <laughs> they're yeah. very, they're a rare breed. Yeah, the, the original so, unicorn, not yeah, the, not yeah, the, the $1 original, billion dollar companies. Right. But. Yeah. So, so, you know, there are very few women in, in this area of, of technology. And she was one of them. And it was incredible. Some they, Again, these are allegations. So we don't know if these are true. But she said, like, basically her manager had propositioned her for sex. She went to report it to HR and HR was like, eh, just kind of brushed her aside. And and it's like, a, it's not it's, a big deal. It's the first time. We'll have a word with him. And then yeah. it turns out that it seems to me like virtually every single engineer or woman she met in the company afterwards said, yeah, he tried oh, yeah, to we know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> we know this guy. But I think, uh, you know, possibly the thing that really got me was so Uber wanted to order all these uh, leather jackets for the engineering team. And, you know, they measured everybody and they came back and there I think there were like maybe six women on the engineering team. And they said, listen, you guys aren't getting you girls, I should say, or you women aren't getting jackets because we have to order them in bulk and they're just not enough of you to justify the cost. Now, this is a company that has raised billions of dollars and has a valuation, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of about 70 billion dollars. Cost to me to, that that can't be an issue. Yeah, they have they have no problem spending money. At they this could company. probably buy six leather jackets for their women engineers. And and to me, I was like, wow, that is it, again. If if this claim is correct, it, just that is so tone deaf. And and it you know, there's no surprise. A lot of Silicon Valley is like this. Or there's lots of sort of swirling. Um, allegations, claims, what have you, about just women having a very difficult time yeah. breaking through and and kind of getting into the boys' club, like which you think was just part of Wall Street. Yeah, you've got basically the, the full litany of what sexual discrimination comes across as. So, I I think we both agree that the information about the leather jackets is just—I mean, it's so banal and yet sums up everything it about does. sexism. Yeah. And, and, and basically, in general, not just at Uber or in Silicon Valley, but in general, just the fact that well, we'll just we'll just leave you off because it's not worth it. Yeah. Now, you've also got the enabler, that the female enabler, it seems, in the form of one of the people in HR who was constantly defending the firm, and then made it seem as if. As if uh, this woman making the allegations, what's her name? her name? Susan Fowler. Susan Fowler, Was right. the, the problem because she was always making the allegations, so maybe it was her fault. Yeah, it was her fault, which is also just it, just beyond. <laughs> it just Again, if this is the case, that I don't know how anybody can justify that kind of behavior. So it's not only the blog post that hit, I think it was on Sunday, but it was Uber's response that I find also fascinating. And basically, Travis Kalanick went out wrote this memo, decided to hire former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to conduct this internal probe. Now, the memo is first very, very hard-hitting, saying if this is true, we're going to investigate it. If it's true, this is a real problem. It shouldn't be happening. So unlike, say, when he's taking on municipalities, he's not 
being uh, obnoxious. He's actually no. saying here, we will deal with this. Yeah, and to his credit, he basically, you know, addressed the issue head on. He didn't um, try and, you know, brush it aside. He didn't try and, you know, say that this woman, you know, whatever her, her allegations are, aren't true. Um, he's like, okay, we've, we've got to take this seriously. We've got to do an investigation. We have to do an internal probe. We're going to go off and get um, Eric Holder, who has become the go-to in Silicon Valley. Airbnb has hired him to look into allegations of discrimination on their platform. So, you know, okay, that's great. But then you kind of have to wonder, why, how did you even get to this place to begin with? Like, this is something that Uber should have been making these kinds of internal checks. These are obvious internal checks to make. Yeah, it seems and, very institutionalized. Another thing that, that, that she talks about is how uh, various managers, male managers, were fighting to keep, uh, well, first of all, fighting amongst themselves to, to, to backstab them, each other or executives, but also how they wanted to try and keep, I think this is right, try and keep uh, women on their team just so they could say, we've still got women on our team. Right. And so just to put this in context, Uber has roughly about 15% of women that represent their technology workforce, which is in line with Facebook and Google. They're, they're roughly at about 18, 19%. So it's, it's ridiculously low. Yeah. And, you know, to get women into these companies and, you know, and a lot of them are trying to make efforts to recruit more women. But, but again, those numbers and those percentages, to me, it's still pretty low because this has been an effort that's been going on for it's also several years. It's also a rarity to find um, women in senior positions in Silicon Valley. Now, you've got a few examples. Let's give Marissa Meyer at Yahoo. Now, regardless of the issues there, um, she at least is one of the few CEOs. You've got Shell Sandberg at Facebook as a COO. And obviously the finance chief um, at Alphabet, um, Ruth Porat, who came from Morgan Stanley. But the fact you can name these people as opposed to saying, well, there's lots of them, is part of the problem, right? There are just so few of them. And because there's so few of them, the the whole idea of sexism and sort of gender blindness or however you want to describe it can only get worse because there are not enough women at the top to sit here and say, hey, you know what? This is a problem. You can't act this way. Let's take it back to Uber. Obviously, this is a company which may well be looking to do an IPO. She said it's raised billions of dollars. It could, it's worth $65, $70 billion now. It is doing a lot in the industry, not just in, in, in ride-hailing, but also in uh, driverless cars, autonomous cars. It's got a pilot going in Philadelphia, or was it Pittsburgh, in, in, in Pennsylvania anyway, with Volvo. Um, it's bought an uh, um, uh, autonomous trucking company last year as well. It's got various other initiatives out there. People like hiring their people. There's, uh, I think Ford has now got hold of um, a company which is in part run by one of Uber's former top engineers uh, on autonomous cars. So it's got all these things going for it. It wants to do an IPO. It's having trouble making, showing how it's going to make money. This has just got to make it even worse for Uber. Yeah, it? And, and let's step back and talk about what's happened a couple of weeks ago, too, with um, Uber. So when this happened, uh, when the woman came out on her blog post, there was some swift reaction. Basically, a lot of people and a lot of protesters were trying to get back the Twitter hashtag delete Uber, which was basically whipped up about a month ago after President Donald Trump issued his immigration ban on immigrants. Yeah, because Uber had, uh, there was a, a one-hour, two-hour strike of, of New York taxi companies. At JFK. At JFK in solidarity uh, with protesters against the ban. And Uber didn't join the ban. They just said, we'll get rid of surge pricing. Right. We'll get rid of surge pricing. However, you know, and it looked to a lot of people like they were trying to take advantage of the situation. And Kalanick was also on one of Donald Trump's advisory boards. And it made it look as if he was trying to carry favor, I think, in some respects as well. Right. So so this this protest comes up. And I think a lot of people were, were 
very upset at, at Uber and they were like trying to say, hey, listen, don't use this because you do have a choice. You could go to Lyft, which is one of their competitors. Um, you could take a taxi. You could do all sorts of things. So, um, you know, they don't have a lock on the markets. And when they make these kinds of missteps, it can damage their business and they need to grow their user base and they need to grow their revenue because they're not profitable right now. And they are basically, it's going to be difficult, I think, for them to come out in an IPO. And they're going to have to do something at some point because a $70 billion valuation, you've got investors who want to return. They have to get these internal controls in order, particularly if they're going to go out and become a public company. And as they get bigger, this is going to be an issue. Okay, well, Jen, thanks for talking us through that. I'm sure we will be returning to Silicon Valley, sexism, Uber, all these topics, quite possibly, as we discovered, in the same uh, breath again. Thanks for that. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank you, Jen, both as co-host and uh, as one of the lead contributors this week. Also, thanks, Lauren Silver-Loftin, for joining us on The Line from Dallas. And thanks to our producers, Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio, uh, for this week's show. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Do subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. We really do want to know what you think of what we're doing, as long as you're not too rude. Tune in next week for another episode of The Views Room. Thanks for joining us.